Psalm 94, 17. It says, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Father, we thank you that we can come together this morning and be surrounded by uh, the fellowship of the saints and uh, your church. And we just ask that you would bless our time together, bless your word to our hearts. Um, may you just help encourage and strengthen us for a new week. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements as uh, Steve comes up. One is that if you are a newcomer this morning, we're uh, glad to have you here. Uh, we do have uh, on the back of the bulletin a little strip that you can uh, tear off and enter some of your information and stick it in the offering box uh, up in the in the entryway. Uh, also, we want to remind people that the Christmas program is coming up December 19th. Um, so for those that are preparing to be involved in that, uh, good reminder to keep working on those songs and scriptures and uh, things that will be happening. Uh, with that, I'm going to invite Steve to come up. Certainly glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Grateful for your presence. Wanted to highlight one more announcement that I was asked to uh, specifically say. In the bulletin and online, you'll be noticing that we have a survey. The elders put together a survey that we're asking everybody to fill out, if you would. That, I don't care how old you are, young you are, whatever. We want you to fill it out. What we're trying to do is just kind of get a, a really better picture of where it is the people of Creekside Church are serving in the church and in the community. And as we do that, we also want to encourage people to get involved, to use your abilities and talents, not only in the church, but in the community. And also, we're trying to get a, make it you aware of ways that you can get involved. Okay? So some people say, I'd like to serve, I'd like to do something, I just don't know where, either in the church or in the community, as we try to motivate and uh, mobilize people for ministry uh, for God's glory and for making disciples, uh, devoted disciples of Jesus Christ in all places. So I'd like you to join with me in prayer as we prepare to worship through opening up the Word of God this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for so many things. We thank you for this chance to worship together in peace we thank you for the privilege of being exposed to the truths of the Word of God. We thank you for the time we've had this last week, many of us with family and friends, and we pray uh, that you would help us to be mindful that every good and perfect gift is from above. It flows down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and a sensitive spirits as we explore the truths of your word and seek to apply them to our own lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. wanted to say, glad you're with us on the first Sunday of Advent, okay? So this is the four Sundays preceding Christmas, so this first one, all right? So already, I know it's kind of soon, we just got done with Thanksgiving, but that's the way it is. I was really shocked in about mid-October when I walked into a store and there were Christmas trees up and they were already decorated and there were ornaments out and they're selling this stuff and yet I thought, you know what, hey, 
It's been a long time coming. We are really, really eager to experience kind of like a normal Christmas. I mean, after last year, it was like all that we endured, we'd just as soon forget as we anticipate like Christmas coming, all right? And I thought about that in light of the text that we're going to be looking at this morning because the text this morning focuses on Christ's second advent, not his first advent, but his second advent. And many of us are like, okay, we should be more eager in anticipation of his second advent, but we'd just as soon forget all of the stuff that is supposed to take place between now and then, all right? And uh, the stuff is some of the stuff we've been singing about. The hardships, the suffering, the struggle, the tribulation, the trial, the persecution. It's like, wait, I don't really, I don't really want that. I'm really not eager to anticipate that, and we'd rather not consider that this morning. And so we're in the, the Gospel of Matthew. And just for a review, the Math, Matthew's Gospel, the first 18 chapters talk about Jesus Christ. The whole book is about Jesus Christ as the King of Israel, Lord of the nations. First 18 chapters, Jesus is the king revealed. Chapters 19 through 23, Jesus is the king rejected. Now we're in chapters 24 and 25 where this rejected king is now portrayed as the king who's returning. Okay, And so that's where we're at in the gospel. And these two chapters are really a response. The disciples asked Jesus a question in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, and we're going to read it over in a few minutes. And the entirety of the, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, this text is, or the Olivet Discourse, I'm sorry, the Olivet Discourse, we read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, this is Olivet Discourse, still taking place on the Mount of Olives. And so this whole passage is a response to Jesus', uh, Jesus response to these questions that they're asking him. And I would like to say it's, uh, it's you know, getting his thoughts on the re- the, the return of Christ, his return, but also on the destruction of the temple as he comes back to establish his millennial kingdom. And there's confusion about this. this is a very difficult section of Scripture. It's an off-debated section of Scripture. A lot of people have a lot of opinions on it, and I'm not telling you not with any kind of definitive action that my interpretation is the accurate one. But there are at least three main ways you can take this text. You can take this text as it's already happened, it's all over. You can take this text as everything is way in the future and we don't even have to worry about it because the church is not going to be here. Or you can take it as, well, it's some of each. Um, and that's where I'm at. It's some of each, okay? Uh, some of the stuff has already happened, some of it's in the process of happening, and some of it's going to be so far uh, actually repeated in the future, some of it, that we're going to be like, whoa, we're not, going to, we're not going to be around. But in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14, Jesus is revealing to us, revealing to his disciples, that life between now and his second coming is going to be tough, so that we can prepare for it. So that we can persevere in the midst of what's going on right now. And so we can live on purpose as God's people according to his plan. Jesus is not so much concerned about us understanding every little detail and being able to know exactly when and where and how and all this is going to happen. As he is, how we're supposed to live in his absence. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. If you have a phone or a device, you have a 
a Bible app, you can turn there. There is a Bible in the seat, under the seat in front of you, or there should be, at least in that row. I'm going to read, beginning with verse 1 of Matthew chapter 24, and then we're going to unpack uh, these two revelations concerning the end of the age that confirm Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom, that call those who don't know Jesus to repent and believe, and that convince those of us and compel those of us who know Jesus that, you know what, we got to persevere, we got to remain faithful, we got to remain fruitful, we have to remain firm as we wait for Christ to come. Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Here we go. And Jesus came out from the temple. And remember, he's been in the temple <laughs> since back in chapter 21. He went in, he, he ransacked the temple, then he left, came back the next day. The next day has taken place in chapters 22 and 23. Okay, so it's a long day. And it says, and Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to the point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us uh, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various, place, in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things will merely be the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and many will mislead many. And because, of law, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then... The end shall come. And so we have these two revelations that are here. First of all, we're given this prediction about the temple's destruction. All right? And there's two sides to this interaction that I want to highlight from the text between Jesus and the disciples that lead to his prediction. So first of all, we see the disciples' admiration of the temple. Jesus is walking out of the temple, came out from the temple. Now, this is after the repeated confrontations with the religious leaders, these repeated confrontations with the religious leaders that basically where his authority and their hostility towards him has both been confirmed. They don't like him. He didn't really like them very much. And he's the king, and they don't like him being the king. And so that coupled with his mention, as you were here last week, Matt was sharing about at the end of Matthew chapter 23, if you look at verse 38, it says, Behold, your, your house is being left to you desolate. So Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving, and this place is, is going to be left desolate. It conveys his rejection of the antagonist. Judgment's coming, remember that? Judgment's coming, a new temple's coming. This one's going out, the new one's coming. Jesus is the new temple of the, uh, that we 
find the presence of God in. So that's what Jesus is doing. And the disciples are focused on, hey, this is a pretty cool place. And they're looking at the temple and they're saying, wow. In fact, uh, if you want to look, you don't have to look, but in Mark chapter 13, uh, verse 1, uh, the text says that they looked at it and they said, what wonderful buildings. You know, this is a tremendous place. There's a, the Babylonian Talmud, which I don't spend a lot of time reading, but this quote from that says, He that never saw the temple of Herod never saw a fine building. Some of the stones in the temple that they're talking about, get this, were 40 feet long, single stones, 40 feet long, 12 feet high, and 12 feet wide. Quarried outside of Jerusalem and manually carried and put in place. That's an impressive place. It's a massive temple. I've seen some impressive places. One place that I've seen that was impressive was St. Istvan's Basilica in downtown Budapest. And this picture, I think we have a picture of it. Yeah, this is the picture of it. We had been there, and it's fabulous. You know, you walk in this place, and this was the idea. Sometimes we're down on some traditions, and we say, well, they're just all about their building and all about that stuff. But you were supposed to get a sense of being in the presence of God. And it's like, wow, can you imagine? So Jesus is saying he's walking out. And so the temple for the Jewish people, the temple for the disciples, was the, was the place that God dwelled. It was the house of God for them. It was his presence was dwelling among them. In this place, it was also the Israel's the, uh, the the picture of Israel's cultural beauty. It was their, hey, this is our place. You know, this is the beauty of the temple, and it was also to indicate the permanence of their religious faith. And Jesus is saying, and none of that stuff they wanted to part with, but Jesus is basically saying, "See ya, goodbye, it's over. This stuff is passing away." There's, there's, there's judgment coming, a new temple, the temple of the Spirit of God uh, being the person of Jesus, but then also the temple of God becomes the believer, the individual believer, as the Spirit of God dwells within the believer. And their interests seemed a little bit misplaced because they were holding on to the temple. And Jesus is saying, no, the temple's out. Your house is being left to you desolate. It was an architectural wonder, but it was spiritually impoverished. Spiritual God, Spirit of God wasn't there. So that's the disciples' admiration. And that leads to the Lord's prediction in, in verse 2. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Wow. That was a striking prediction. Based on the spiritual bankruptcy of the place, it was going to be torn down. This marvelous place was going to be torn down. And it was crazy for those people. The, the, they had rejected their Messiah. And he said, okay, I'm done with you. It would be destroyed. And their rejection and the judgment that would come would be visible through the destruction of the place, their most holy place. Not one stone we left here upon another. In fact, in Luke chapter 19... Uh, Jesus describes it even more in, de- in more detail. For the days will come upon you when the enemies will put down a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Judgment for rejecting Jesus. And I think this prophecy was fulfilled initially 
in AD 70 when the Romans came in and ransacked the temple. I'm not convinced that that's the final one that's being talked about because I think there's one coming later on during the tribulation period. The disciples could take comfort though in the fact that Jesus had his plan. Again, remember Matt talked about the judgment's coming, but there's a new temple. So, okay, it's part of God's plan. So that's the prediction. The temple's going to be destroyed. But there's more here in the text. It's not the first prophecy was about the temple's destruction. The second prophecy has to do with the second coming. And so we see we're given the precursors to the consummation of the end of the age. The signs of the destruction of the temple, Christ's return, and the end of the age. That's what's being talked about in the passage. Destruction of the temple, Christ's return, the end of the age. And so Jesus is seated on the Mount of Olives, which looks over, I'm told, I've never been there. Okay, So I've not been to the Holy Land and seen this. But the Mount of Olives overlooks the Kidron Valley, which gives you a great view of the temple. And so he's speaking there. And the, the disciples, they come to him and we see these two forces at work that bring the precursors of the signs of the end and thus the duty of the disciples to light. So it's the time of the end, but it's also what are the duties of the, of the disciples that come to light here. First of all, uh, the disciples ask a question. I put the precursors are solicited. They're asked for. What is the sign? What's happening? When will these things be? What things? Well, primarily the temple's destruction, but not just the temple's destruction, but also the appearance of Jesus to establish his earthly kingdom. When is that going to happen? So the disciples viewed that if, if the temple's going to be destroyed, this catastrophic and complete destruction of the temple, then it's obviously that something that cataclysmic must be the only thing that would be prior to Jesus establishing his kingdom because we couldn't think of anything else that would be so terrible. The immediate manifestation. So when they say, when will this be, and what is the time of your coming? When they say coming, they're not thinking of the way we think of coming. They're thinking of the manifestation. When will you declare to the world and show to the world you are the Messiah? They're not, talk, they're not thinking about him leaving and coming back. They're thinking about when is it going to manifest? It's all going to happen right at once. So when follows from what are the signs? How did I know Christmas is coming? I walked into the store and I saw all the Christmas trees. Okay, oh, Christmas is coming because there's a sign. What is the sign that helps me know when? So we know the signs, then we know the when. That's the idea behind what the disciples are asking. And the disciples fully expected it wouldn't be long. He's going to destroy the temple, well, then he's going to usher in the kingdom, right? That's the only thing that's bam, bam, that's going to happen. That's what they expected. And he didn't think it'd be long before the skeptics would be singing what we saw in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're going to be saying, and it's not going to be long before that happens. What they didn't know, and uh, Jesus didn't tell them, was uh, there's going to be a little interval between his death, resurrection, and the establishment of the kingdom. There's going to be a little, little, little thing going on there. So the destruction of the temple then, in my understanding, serves as one potent example of the distressing events between the advents that precedes and pictures, anticipates the final end where 
things get even worse. All right? To quote Keener, a commentator, he says, Near, nearer judgments foreshadow final judgments. So what's happening in the immediate is pretends and foretells and foreshadows what's going to happen even further down the road. Okay? So the sign that they sought becomes signs. It's not one, it's many, many signs of what will take place before the Lord's return. So Jesus' answer doesn't stress a chronology, but conduct. And the signs are deliberately too imprecise to determine a date. You know, I remember the first ministry we had, we were 1998, uh, September 10th, 1998, Jesus was coming back. I remember getting information. Some guy had it pinned down. And now isn't it interesting that this guy knew, but Jesus didn't know when he was coming back. You read Mark 13, 32. It says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man, when he will return. And so we, we don't, I'm not looking for, you know, it's too imprecise to determine a date. But to stress the need for discernment, for faithfulness. For alertness on the part of the disciples. So as we look at the text, I'm not looking for, well, that happened. So, you know, was there ever a famine in the world? Oh, Jesus is coming tomorrow. No, but when there are famines, we know that that's something that happens before Jesus comes back. All right. And so here we go. The, the, the precursors, the signs are stated. So it's, they're solicited. When is it going to happen? What would be the sign of your return? But the sign becomes signs. And now we see the signs. And so these are the signs that precurse, that come ahead of, of Jesus coming back. The entire Sermon on the Mount is the answer to the question. Verse 3. Jesus sitting on the temple mount, the disciples. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And you understand the sign of your coming and the end of the age for them were the same thing. Just boom. All condensed into, into one thing. And so Jesus lays them out. But that's not how we see it, because these are the precursors that come before Jesus comes. These are the beginning of birth pangs. Uh, Jesus describes, I think, in verses 4 through 14, the traumatic and troublesome circumstances his disciples will face before he comes back. Okay. Uh, David Turner, in his commentary, put it this way. The, these beginning of birth pangs events seem to characterize the entire period between the comings of Jesus. Okay. So, the first coming and the second coming. And here they are. Counterfeit Christs. Okay. Prepare for counterfeit Christs. He says, verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. First command in the passage. See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And we have people who are misleading people. That Even though some of them are calling themselves the Christ, but they're misleading people. I would contend that the whole issue of, of critical theory, that it's being embraced in the church, is a deception that's misleading people about who Jesus is, about the person and the work of Jesus, even though some of the ministers may not be saying they are the Christ. But he says many will come. That means more than one, right? Many will come. Counterfeit Christs will be so effective they're going to mislead many people. Uh, look over the page, if you would, if you have it in Matthew 24, verse 
24. And for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Yeah, we've had them. You might have to Google this. Some of you are a little, well, a lot younger than me. But David Koresh and Jim Jones, you know, these guys were false Christs. They, they had followers and brought them after them. And people even voluntarily killed themselves. For the sake of these people, these false Christs who are misleading people. And there will be more. And the best way to understand a false Christ is not to know every deviation from Christ, but to know Christ. If we know who Jesus is, then we can determine who isn't Jesus. You know, this is the, the uh, federal currency. They, they don't, you know, the guys that identify counterfeits, and some of you know this, they don't study all the counterfeits they study the real thing and now we have these watermarks in our bills and all they have to do is look for that watermark in the bill so they know the real thing and if you know the real thing then you'll be able to easily identify what's not the real thing and if anybody says that Jesus has not come in the flesh he's of the devil in first John okay so we know some of these things and some of these false teachers that that say Jesus hasn't come in the flesh but they are going to be many then we need to expect Conflict between nations, verses 6 and 7. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And see to it that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. And, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. So there are these expected conflicts. Religious deception, false Christ, will coexist with the, these, these international aggressions that take place. And we've seen it all through history. You say, well, okay, that happened in World War I, it happened in World War II, it happened in Korea, it happened whatever. But we see it today. Iran and Israel is like a tinderbox. China and Taiwan, it's like a tinderbox. It's just ready to explode. It's ready to happen. These things are happening. They haven't just happened in the history. But despite the instability, despite the fears, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Look at verse 6. For these things must take place, but that not is the end. For, and he says, see to it that you are not frightened. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little bit freaked out when you know, there's conflict going on all over the world. And I go, ooh, I'm a little bit scared. I don't know about you, but in the summer of 2020, it was a little bit frightening. Uh, that people were walking around and, uh, you know, you didn't know whether they're coming into your neighborhood. They didn't know if they're coming into your house. They were, you know, destroying things all over the country. It's like a little bit frightening. And he says, do not fear. I've got it. Jesus insists that his disciples, those things must take place as a necessary part of his plan. But that's not the end. Wars and rumors of wars are going to take place. And it took place even in the disciples' lifetime in, in Rome and A.D. 66 and A.D. 70. Then be ready for catastrophes, famines, and earthquakes, he says. Devastating and ominous disasters. 2021, I, 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 I did some research here. In 2021, there were famines in Ethiopia, in Madagascar, South Sudan, and Yemen, and maybe other places in the world. Happens. Earthquake. Well, we had a team that just got back from Haiti. In August of 2021, there was a 7.2 uh, earthquake in Haiti. 2,200 people died, you know, 
There were 12,000 people that were injured and 630,000 people in Haiti alone who needed help and assistance. It's, it's happening all over the world. And Jesus declared that these signs are merely the beginning of birth pains. Now, uh, us guys, we don't know what that's like, right? But uh, the ladies who've had babies, they know what the beginning of birth pains are. But I think it's interesting that he stresses the beginning of birth pains, which means a couple of things. If you understand the beginning of birth pains, first of all, that means that this is just the beginning. And it also means it's going to get worse. I've witnessed three live births, and I can testify to that fact, uh, that it is just the beginning, and it does get worse. Uh, and so these things are just the beginning of birth pains, and they're going to get worse, which is a, a familiar figure from the, in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 13 and in, in Micah chapter 4, it talks about birth pangs as an illustration of the trouble and tribulation and hardship that precedes the Messiah's coming. Beginning of first pains, a hint at extended labor and excruciating pain. This is just the beginning. So what, Romans chapter 8 talks about this, and we looked at this in the, uh, well, we didn't look at it, we were talking about it in the, in the first service, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And I'm not sure that's the one I wanted. But there, there, there's a it talks about groaning, okay? That we're groaning. There's a groaning that takes place in the creation. All creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Are you groaning only because you ate too much? Or do you groan when you see the trouble in the world? When you see the difficulties in your own family, when you see the sorrow and the struggle that life brings. That's the groaning. There's catastrophe, but there is also this, that brings this, this groaning that people are hurting. And then there's anticipated persecution, verses 9 and 10. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. So it's not just people trying outside trying to deceive. It's not just people that are uh, in, you know, wars and rumors of wars. But in verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation. Who will? The people in the world. Then doesn't signify a sequence here in verse 9. It just means during these birth pangs, this birth pangs includes people delivering you to persecution. Okay, deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had, had already told them that this would happen. Okay, in verses 17 and 18, he says, I'm, I'm just going to look there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. We don't do this enough, I don't think. Turn back in our Bible. Verse 17, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as the testimony to them and to, and to the Gentiles. They're going to deliver you up. That's what he says. They're going to deliver you up. From outside the church, the disciples will be martyred and, and, and hated. Okay, you ready to sign up? Oh. Persecuted. And we sang songs. I mean, when we were singing these songs, these were not just picked out because of, you know, uh, random. These are things that God expects and anticipates. All who live godly in Christ Jesus 
Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy, we'll be, or 2 Timothy 3, we'll be persecuted. I'm a coward. I, I, I don't really like conflict. Uh, I don't really want to be maligned or besmirched or made fun of or criticized. I don't like people coming into my office and saying, well, what, how do you guys define you know, marriage? And I, I say we divide marriages between one, uh, one man and one woman for life. Well, that's too bad. And then they, people walk out. You know? I don't really like that. But we have in our country an increasing amount of persecution towards those who are people of faith. In Christ. We also have it in just to the north. I don't know, some of you have heard the names of James Coates. Some of you have heard the name of uh, this guy, uh, Pawlowski. Both of them, Arthur Pawlowski, both of them were imprisoned in Canada because they led their congregations to gather together to worship God in contrast to what the government said they should do. But Jesus said to us, in uh, Matthew chapter, or John chapter 15, uh, that we would be hated. And we have John chapter 18, verse, John 15, 18 through 21. He says, you'll be hated because of me. If the world hates you, know that it hates me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, uh, love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, because of this the world hates you. Widespread animosity result in torture, death, and, and persecution of believers. And I don't really like that. But God calls us to stand up for the truth. And if we stand for the truth, we will not be appreciated by the world in which we live. Stephen was stoned. Paul was the one who was persecuting. He was going after those who were naming the name of Jesus. And then he became one who was persecuted as a follower of Jesus. Animosity towards Christians is on the rise. I have brothers and sisters in India who they have their Bibles on their phones now because they can't carry their Bibles with them in their arms and they're on their phone you know, in the transportation. They're reading their Bibles and they're doing stuff and then they can just click it right away from it in case somebody's looking over their shoulder because they know that the, the leaders of India are searching out and seeking out. There's Hindu radicals that are seeking them out to take them out. Same as every place in the world. You North Korea, you can go to China, you can go to any place in, in the world, continent probably in the world, and you can see that Christians are being persecuted. There's animosity. There's increasing animosity. And the devastating effect, if we look at it, says well, in verse 10, is that at that time many will fall away. So there will be people who are professing faith in Christ who will fall away. They won't be true followers of Jesus because they're afraid of the persecution that comes their way. And that's not fun. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talks about this in verses 21 and 22. Now brother will betray brother to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all because of my name but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now why do we look at this in the scriptures? Because look folks, you and I have seen in the last like three or four years an increase in animosity towards Christians. And I don't know about you, but some of us, we sit around, wow, this is, 
What is happening to our world? Uh, Matthew 24 is happening to our world. Romans chapter 8 is happening to our world. 1 Peter, the whole book, is happening to our world. We're being persecuted. We're being seen as hostile towards God. And, you know, I, I say this about, and I mentioned this about critical, critical theory in all of its forms, but you understand that critical theory is rooted in Marxism. And Karl Marx believed in God. He just hated him. It's not that he was, you know, an atheist. He just thought that that was stupid and we should not believe in God and that we should ignore God and that we would do anti-God. Anti That's why we see this, this thrust. And it surprises us because we grew up kind of like not feeling it so much, kind of insulated from it. But God says it's coming, and so we need to prepare for it. And then in Luke, or in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, some comfort, some encouragement. Now I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Don't you love that? <laughs> Yeah, they can just take me out, that's it. And I stand here in America, in a, in, a, in a pretty sanitary place, a safe place, and say that, and yet if it soaks into my being, I don't know. But fear whom? Fear the one who can, after he has killed your body, is able to destroy your soul in hell. Now that's my paraphrase, okay? Yes, I tell you, fear him, and who's that? It's God. And fear him. So I want to fear him. And so we better be ready for this, this persecution that comes to us. And then, number five, is be ready for perversion. Verses 11 and 12. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. False teachers. Resulting in a pervasive lawlessness. It says, if you go on in verses 11 and 12, we'll, and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Mislead many. Do you know that there are churches, churches where people who name the name of Jesus, who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, are advocates and promoters of abortion. They celebrate sexual perversion. And they also would, would embrace a, a form of racism. And all in the name of Jesus. Mislead people. Away from what God's word calls us to, to teach and truly believe. And an increase in lawlessness will result in a corresponding decrease in the highest value that the scripture places on any thing, which is to love. Their love will grow cold. Well, if you're promoting perversion, your love of and for God and others will diminish because it's more of a love for self than it is a love for God. I've never done this, but I've uh, <clears throat> um, seen the result of it. Put your coffee in your car in the middle of the winter, you know, headed to work, got my cup of coffee, set it in my car, then leave it in your car all day when it's 10 below zero out. And then you come home and guess what? Your coffee's grown cold. Uh, it's pretty dead. It's pretty lifeless. It's just frozen. And this is what happens when perversion 
invades the truth of the gospel and misleads people that our love for God, our love of God, our love for God, and our love for other people, it grows cold. And so what is he saying here? That life on earth will grow this way, increasingly dangerous and hopeless for most people and treacherous and painful for believers. That's not, that's not hopeful news. That's reality news. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't leave us hopeless. Look at verse 13. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. Perseverance. Press ahead. Cling to Jesus. Follow him. Be faithful. And guess what? You will be saved. Only authentic disciples will remain faithful. And they will be saved. See, Paul had a perspective. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outward person is decaying, yet our inner, per, inner, inner person is being renewed day by day, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, for far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's easy to say. It's really hard to do. I guess I ask you to pray for all of us to pray that that would be our perspective. We'd see, yeah, my outward is decaying, but I pray and ask God that my inward be renewed day by day because I'm keeping my eyes on that which is eternal and not focused on that which is temporal. Okay? See, the Christian life is, and I'm not, I can't, I shouldn't even say this, I guess, because I'd never run a marathon. But it's like running a marathon. You know, I've been told by people who run marathons, you know, that there are a lot of opportunities along the way to give up. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of trials along the way that would turn you away from completing the marathon. Yes? But only as you persevere, only as you press ahead, only as you mentally tell your body to do what your body's screaming at you, I don't want to do, that you keep going. And such it is with the Christian life. It's not a sprint. If it was a sprint, you know, a lot of people would cross the finish line. You know, most people can, you know, uh, well, in their prime of life, I guess, can sprint 100 yards. Uh, if you're not in shape, you think, you're, you think it's over after you sprint 100 yards. But you can get across the finish line at 100 yards. But 26.3 miles? I've never even tried. You know, I wouldn't even start. Uh, but you train for it, you know. Training yourself for discipline, that's what it's, it's like. It's like running a marathon. And then finally, those who persevere will finish. And finally, he talks about, he says, prioritize proclamation. This, I, this warms my heart. See, life is bad. Trials, false Christs, persecutions, wars, famines, rumors of wars. And guess what? We have the good news. There's bad news all around us. And that's what everybody hears. But we have the good news. And Jesus says, keep speaking and sharing the good news. In the face of perversions, in the face of persecution, and in the face of problems, we proclaim the kingdom to all nations, all peoples. Hardships, we're supposed to stay on mission, right? Making devoted disciples of Jesus Christ in all places. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Proclaim to them that there's forgiveness. Proclaim to them that there's life in Christ Jesus that transcends this life now, that keeps us going because God is 
a God of grace and mercy. Christian endurance of suffering, that is persecution, and the proclamation of the gospel go hand in hand. Until all the world hears, he says. Tertullian, paraphrased, said this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We proclaim the gospel. Because only when we proclaim the gospel will people hear and repent and turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And then all the trials and difficulties of this life, as bad as they may be, will pale in comparison to the glory that we receive in heaven. And that's the prize. This is not our best life. Now, I pray and I want it to be good for all of us, but it's not the best. But we cling to this which is garbage and give up that which is great and glorious and grand. And he says, no, you proclaim the gospel amidst all the bad news. We proclaim the good news in the whole world to all nations. Then the end will come. Then the end will come. When I was a a boy growing up at home, we had to walk through the bean fields and we had to pull the weeds out of the bean fields. Called walking beans, you know. It was one of my first jobs that I ever got paid to do for a whopping 50 cents an hour. And we were walking in the hot summer sun and we'd pull the weeds and pull out of the beans. But we never got paid until we got done. And then pay us ahead of time. Say, oh yeah, here's your money. Here We'll front you the money. Huh, no. Uh, you do the work, you get the pay. We preach the gospel and Jesus comes. That's what he says. You proclaim the gospel in all the world. Now, I'm not sitting here to say, okay, now we got this many people groups that have heard the gospel. And so when we get this, I don't know what Jesus exactly means by it. In all the world, which means I think that you know, everybody who's on the planet will have a chance to hear, or their people group will have a chance to hear the gospel. What that means, I don't know. Whether it was on the radio, whether it was on the internet, whether it was a person telling them. I, I'm not making those predictions. I'm just saying, then the end will come. We preach the gospel. Because the gospel is the life. That's what people need. More than they need healing from their ailments. More than they need emotional stability. If they have the gospel, then Jesus is enough. And he'll rescue us. And if you are here and you're listening to this and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me just say this. You are not exempt from these trials, tribulations, and difficulties. They're coming upon everybody. And so my admonition to you is to repent and believe to escape the, the judgments that's coming when, when Christ eventually does return. And if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, despite the, uh, the pandemic problems of the last year, you know, we're really looking forward to Christmas, right? You know, he's going, ah, oh, man, we're going to be together for once. I, I'm hoping and praying I don't have to stand outside when it's 20 degrees and the, and the snow blowing off my, uh, on my face to watch my parents open their Christmas gifts. It just wasn't cool. It just wasn't fun. It just wasn't life like I wanted. I hope and pray that I would grow in my anticipation of the return of Christ in the same way that I look forward to a normal, quote-unquote, Christmas. To celebrate the first Advent and look with anticipation as equal anticipation to the second Advent of Jesus, that he would come back. And I would understand that Christ gives us the power, and I would challenge you, encourage you, that Christ gives us the power to live in the meantime. 
He gives us the courage and the boldness of His Spirit within us to be courageous in the midst of the tribulations and trials that are coming upon us. Christ empowers us so that we can reject false Christs. We have to. We have to reject false Christs. To remain vigilant so I'm not led astray. How do I do that? Because I stick my nose in this book and I stay faithful to it. And I have other people around me who say, no, you're getting off. You need to stay true to God's word. And then we would also rest in God's sovereignty. I don't know about you. It was like, phew. Since about a year ago, it's like chaos in the world. And we keep telling ourselves, okay, God's got this. You know, God's got this. Oh, I know he's got it, but I'm kind of wondering. God is in control. We rest in his sovereignty over all of these things, all the famines and wars and earthquakes. And we run the race. God, help us to run the race with endurance. And then we relate the good news because that's what people need. They need Jesus. And as we think about who Jesus is and what he's done, we, we automatically, we think we could come to the cross of Jesus Christ where his greatest demonstration of love gives us encouragement that his promises will continue to come true. Even what he's promised us that he will bring about his return in judgment and renewal of his believers. Hey, he died and he rose again. He showed his love to us. There's no greater love that he could demonstrate than what he's done. And we have confidence that he will carry through with what he's done. His commitment to rescue undeserved sinners, he's going to bring us home. It's going to bring us home. So as you close this service, you take a moment to think about the fact that it's not going to be an easy ride until Jesus returns, but he gives us the grace to go through it. Thank him for what he's done for us in hope and conviction that he's going to bring it about his complete return of Christ. As you take the wafer and the cup, do so with gratitude, do so with praise and rejoicing, and in humility we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks. Father, give us grace and mercy. Um, these are not easy things to grasp, Father. Not things that we welcome. That there's going to be tribulation and hardship in the time between your first coming and your second coming. But I pray that you'd help us to take your words to preserve us, to protect us, to help us to remain, be firm and faithful throughout our lives for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. i